The word today is generosity. This is a very important attribute in the faithful life. It is. God wants all of us to grow in faith. God wants all of us to grow in generosity. Generosity is a gift of the Spirit. Generosity is a sign of mature faith. Generosity is also a certain proven avenue to joy. We find joy when we're generous. In some devotional reading this week, I came across an an interesting and indicting quote from the spiritual writer Thomas Merton. Merton describes our tendency to keep our distance from God. Merton warns that many Christians, and I quote, are not really interested in God, except in order to ensure themselves against losing heaven and going to hell. Many Christians, he says, confine their interior life to a a few routine exercises of piety, think prayer before meals or bedtime, and a few external acts of worship and service performed as a duty. Such people, Merton says, are careful to avoid sin. They respect God as master. And here's where it gets indicting. In actual practice, their minds and hearts are taken up with their own ambitions, their own troubles, their own comforts and pleasures, and all their worldly interests and anxieties and fears. God is only invited to enter this charmed circle to smooth out difficulties and to dispense rewards. End quote. Ouch. We need to keep tending to our faithful lives so that this is not a description of us. God has not finished with us yet. God has bigger plans for us. I want to try something slightly different today on this summer Sunday. I want you to pull out the black pew Bible that's in front of you and turn it to page 490. Turn it to page 490, which is Psalm 112. I hope there's a pew Bible near everybody or you can share. Uh, This is Psalm 112 that Jarl read just a moment ago. Can you find it? Everybody got it? Notice. Notice the words of this psalm. This is a psalm of praise. It starts out, praise the Lord, and then it says, happy are those who fear the Lord, who greatly delight in His commandments. The word fear here, take note, can be very misleading. It doesn't mean that we are to be afraid of God. It doesn't mean God is threatening. It doesn't mean God is frightful. The common English Bible perhaps says it better. In that translation, it says, Those who honor the Lord, who adore God's commandments, are truly happy. See the change? The word fear in this translation is really more about profound reverence. Those who have a reverent awe of God, who greatly delight in God's ways, God's commandments, are the happy ones, the blessed ones. That's the point. God does not want us to be afraid. 
Remember, the number one commandment in the Bible is do not fear. It's in there 365 times, once for every day. God wants us to be not afraid. God wants us to be faithful. And when we have profound reverence for God, we find joy and purpose. That's not relegating God to the sideline like is our tendency, according to Thomas Merton. When we know we belong to God, when we honor God with how we live, when we cherish God's blessings, then we live with a sense of awe and love before God. We delight in God's ways. We praise the Lord with how we live. That's verse 1. And as the psalm continues, this theme is played out. When we honor God with how we live, then it says our descendants, that word is right there, will be also blessed. Verse 2, the offspring of those who delight in God prosper. We do not just live for ourselves. We live for God. And when we live for God, according to this psalm, it has lasting effects on the generations. Imagine that. I learned this week that when Native Americans were thinking about future plans, when Native Americans were talking about anything, they asked each other and they always considered, how are these plans going to affect our ancestors seven generations from now? It's called the seventh generation principle. How are these plans going to affect our ancestors seven generations from now? Imagine that as a guiding principle for lives of faith and discipleship. Just this week, our government leaders passed some budget resolutions that adds trillions of dollars to our deficit. Uh, they did not want to deal with this subject in September. They didn't want to deal with it in December. What about seven generations from now? We're a long way from the seventh generation principle. Our focus on the immediate, that which affects us now, is generally how we operate, and it's affecting our planet. Ice caps are melting faster than anyone ever expected. What about seven generations from now? These verses in Psalm 112 remind us that the descendants of those who honor God, who live with reverence and awe, who seek to follow God's commands, they'll be mighty in the land. They too will be blessed. We're called to live with a profound sense of reverence and awe and with a sense that life is always lived out before God. Then the psalm continues. Take note, with wealth and riches will be in their homes. They'll be in their homes. Their righteousness shall shine forth. They will rise. That word is there. They will shine in the darkness. They are gracious and merciful and righteous. And all of this flows when we honor God with reverence and trust and we're connected to God. And then look at verse 5. And then also verse 9, these same people who honor God, who fear the Lord, who live with reverence, they practice generosity. Our word for the day, the psalm says they deal generously and lend. They conduct their affairs with justice. In verse 9, their hearts are steady in the Lord and they had distributed freely. They have given to the poor and their righteousness endures forever. We have work to do. We have work to do 
about generosity. The point of this psalm is to celebrate those who honor God, praise the Lord. The point of this psalm is to lift up and point out what honoring God looks like, generosity, gracious living, hearts firm in God, not afraid, conducting affairs with justice, giving freely, especially to those in need. Again, this is the word of the Lord. Now turn in your Bible to page 847. We're jumping to the New Testament and to the Gospel of Luke. We've been looking recently uh, through these summer Sundays at Luke 9 and Luke 10 and Luke 11. And today we find ourselves in Luke 12. And on page 847, I'm reading from chapter 12 beginning at the 13th verse. So read along with me as I read this aloud. Someone in the crowd said to him, that's Jesus... Tell, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But Jesus, he said to him, friend, who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed for no one's life, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly, and he thought to himself, What should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. You didn't think that was in the Bible, did you? (laughs) Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. This is the word of the Lord. Clarence Jordan was a fine Southern preacher. He was a social activist. He was uh, the founder of the famous Koinonia Partners in Georgia. And Clarence Jordan said that whenever Jesus wanted to make an important point, he lit a stick of dynamite and he covered it up with a parable. (laughs) So true. Uh, The parable... This one doesn't appear in any of the other Gospels. It's only in Luke. So let's take note of what Jesus is blowing up with the dynamite in this parable. First, we note in the opening line that money, namely inheritance, is the subject. We assume in our lives, in our society, that money, the money we make, the money that's ours, is ours. And whatever is ours is always ours, and what we do with it, finally, is simply a matter of personal choice. And certainly in our culture, we fight and value so hard about personal choices, so any talk about money feels personal. It's more like meddling in our personal lives. Well, Jesus blows that right up. He's going to talk about it a lot. Money is mentioned more than 150 times in the New Testament alone. It's a favorite subject of Jesus. But Jesus never says money is bad. 
It all and always depends on what is done with money, how it is used, how we think about money. Jesus never condemns money per se, but the love of money, the greedy grasping of money, the covetous instincts that lead us to worship money and worship the things that money can buy instead of God. Notice here that Jesus refuses to be drawn in too close to this story about inheritance or this person's uh, question about inheritance. He doesn't get pulled into being the arbitrator for the dispute about the person's inheritance. He speaks directly to the issue of money in one succinct sentence, well, actually two sentences, to warn of the danger of money. He says, take care. Then he says, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life doesn't consist of abundance of possessions. Direct, succinct, warning, watch out. And then he tells the parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly, and he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. The second thing that Jesus is blowing up in this parable is selfishness. Notice that the man doesn't talk to others. He doesn't engage his community with what he should do. He talks to himself. To himself. Don't we learn that when we talk to ourselves, we are generally likely to get in more trouble? We talk to ourselves and we come to some pretty dangerous conclusions. Right? Just think of it. We talk to ourselves and our fears always grow. We talk to ourselves and our paranoia increases. We talk to ourselves and our self-esteem usually drops. Our rationale decreases. Our conclusions generally suffer. No, we're made for community. Broad, diverse community is always best. We're made for community and Bouncing ideas off one another, we're made for connections. This is where we find life and wholeness and strength and purpose and direction, especially broad, diverse communities. William Barclay, the biblical scholar, points out that there's no other parable of Jesus that is as full as this one of the words I, my, me, and mine. Count the number. It's right in front of you. Look at verses 17 through 19. Just try to count them. Jesus says, you can hardly count them. What shall I do? For I have no place for my crops. I will do this. I will do that. My, my, mine. At least 10 times in three verses. This deserves our close attention. A schoolboy once asked what parts of speech were my and mine, and he said, aggressive pronouns. <laughs> it's true. Aggressive pronouns. He had it right. Jesus is blowing up the tendency towards selfishness here. There are lots of ways all around in these days when we need to hear Jesus' warnings about I my and mine. Just pause and let that sink in. Jesus is warning us big about that. My rights, my money, my guns, my border, name it. 
Selfishness is always a pervasive challenge for us. Individually, in close community, in our nation, across the world, we have to watch out. I, my, mine. Lest we find ourselves a long, long way from God. Henry Nouwen reminds us that we are all so easily lulled into a life that seems to anticipate questions from God that we will never be asked. Nouwen says it seems as if we're conditioned to live our lives preparing for questions like this, anticipating that this is really what matters. How much did you earn in your life? How many friends did you make? How successful were you in your career? How much influence did you have on other people? Or even how many conversions did you make? These are all rooted in selfish gains and selfish attainments and self, self, self. Now his voice becomes even quite prophetic. Are any of these the question Christ will ask when he comes again in glory? If so, we could approach Judgment Day with great confidence. But nobody's going to hear those questions. The questions we're going to face, says Nowen, is not about selfish attainment or selfish achievement, not about anything related to self and my and mine. The question we're going to face is the question about the least. What have you done for the least? As long as there are strangers, Nowen says, as long as there are hungry and naked and sick people, as long as there are prisoners and refugees and slaves, as long as there are people who are handicapped physically and mentally and emotionally and people without work or without a home or a piece of land, there will be that lingering question from God, what have you done for the least? Jesus blows up this idea that selfishness is the way. Jesus affirms that a life centered on one's prosperity, a life centered on one's security is the opposite of the faithful life. Jesus asks, you fool. The things that you have prepared, namely big barns and selfish attainments, who will they be? Whose will they be? He says in this parable. Whose will they be? been reading a book by Simon Sinek recently. He's a best-selling writer. He's an engaging speaker. He's a creative thinker. And he has a term, destructive abundance. Destructive abundance is what happens when selfish pursuits get out of balance with selfless pursuits. Destructive abundance. The man in this story, this parable, is not mean. The man in this story is not immoral. He does not steal. He doesn't mistreat his workers like we hear in other parables. He's simply, according to Jesus, a fool. He lives completely for himself. He talks to himself. He plans for himself. He congratulates himself. We see this so often, don't we? He is a fool, Jesus says, because he got caught up with destructive abundance. 
selfish pursuits got out of balance with selfless pursuits. Jesus says, what does it profit anyone if you gain the whole world and you forfeit your life? Another quote from Thomas Merton, the American monk. Thomas Merton pointed out that we might spend our whole lives climbing the ladder of success and achievement only to find that when we get to the top of the ladder, it's leaning against the wrong wall. The wrong wall. Remember, Christians are made. We're not born. We're made. We're formed. And we're always being transformed. Faith and life result from the intentional devotion to God and God's Spirit working in and through us. We want to be, pe- we want to be the people we aspire to be. Faithful. Generous. This takes our intention, our devotion, our attention, our sacrifice. The whole Bible, and Jesus especially, keep wanting us shaped toward generosity. Generous living, generous sharing is the way to be rich in God. It's also the way to joy and peace and hope and eternal life. May it be so. Amen. Let us pray. Holy God, to turn from you is to fall. To turn from you is to turn to you is to rise. To share life with you, to live with faith and generosity. Well, that is to abide forever. And we seek that way, following Christ our Lord. Amen.